Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. So that's the interesting thing about IA is that it kind of always is there. It's just whether or not you pay attention to the quality of it that I think it has direct determination on whether or not you're successful with it. Abby Covert, also known as Abby the IA, is a pioneer in the field of information architecture. Abby likes to think of herself as a sense maker, a role she believes is becoming more and more necessary in our increasingly messy world. To spread this message, Abby wrote the book, How to Make Sense of Any Mess, and helped found World IA Day that now has events all over the globe. I'm so excited to talk to Abby today and learn a little bit more about how we can make sense of the messes we encounter at work. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, the tool that enables teams to do in-context fieldwork without leaving the office. DScout connects you with people via their smartphones and allows you to handpick recruits, design diary studies, conduct live interviews, and access the moments that matter. Learn more at dscout.com mm. This is Ariel Sionflone, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Sensemaking Through Information Architecture. Abby, I thought that maybe you could start by just giving a little bit of a, a brief introduction. Sure. Uh, so my name is Abby Covert. And um, if you know me on Twitter, you might know me as Abby the IA. I've been writing under that name for about 10 years now. Um, I work at Etsy full time. Uh, before that, I was actually an independent consultant for about seven years. So I've worked with companies, large and small startups and big corporations, uh, mostly on information architecture challenges. I also uh, taught for the last five years at the School of Visual Arts. Um, I was the president of the Information Architecture Institute, and I guess one of my uh, my most proud accomplishments is a co-inventor of World Information Architecture Day, which is a global celebration of information architecture that happens every February all across the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's such an amazing event. It seems like people really enjoy coming together, and, and it's created such a community around information architecture. Yeah, I mean, for me, I feel like the um, the main reason for that event was exactly that. We just wanted people to have a local opportunity to get involved with the information architecture community um, to make it more accessible to those all around the world. Um, and then also to get the message out there. You know, there's a lot of kind of uh, communities that information architecture is related to that uh, don't necessarily get to hear that great content. So we wanted to create that venue for for those folks to get that in their their hometowns. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it really seems like it's been such a successful and powerful event for so many people. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, every year I'm I'm blown away by like the far reaches of the locations and then also just like seeing on that one day Twitter be basically be like overtaken by people talking about information architecture just really makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. So, Abby, I thought that we could just, you know, kind of start by having a conversation around what is information architecture. I'm, I imagine that a lot of the people listening to this have some familiarity, but I think that would be a really great uh, place to kind of ground us. Sure. So information architecture is a really interesting concept because it's not something that was invented. Um, it's not like a methodology that was invented for the, the times that we're in now for technology or, or anything like that. It's actually something that if you think about language and communication, um, humans have been doing information architecture for pretty much as long as we've been humans. So really the definition of information architecture that I find to be the most useful is it's the way that we arrange the pieces of something to make sense as a whole. And there's a couple of really important 
points to that. The first is that um, most things that we design or, or architect into this world have multiple parts that are having to come together. Um, and if you think about that in your own business context, that could mean going across the, the lines of um, responsibility within your organization. That could mean like bringing content together from many different places, you know, whatever that kind of definition means to you. Um, and then also the second part is making it make sense as a whole. So when we put these things together, we, we might trick ourselves into believing that the whole will automatically be clear if the parts are, but in reality, paying attention to the way that those parts come together is actually a skill in itself. And it's something that um, when organizations don't do that, they end up with an information architecture um, just not a very good one. So that's the interesting thing about IA is that it kind of always is there. It's just whether or not you pay attention to the quality of it that um, I think it has direct determination whether or not you're successful with it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I love that you described, you know, information architecture is something that we're always doing and we've always done. It's just whether or not we notice or pay attention to how we're doing it. Right. And, you know, I imagine that it's got to be, you know, kind of an interesting experience for you to explain your role to others, because as you said, it's something that's kind of, you know, always going on. I'm, how do you do that? How do you describe your role to others? Or, for example, at Etsy, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how familiar they are with the concept, you know, before you came, but what was that conversation like? So I think in my experience, information architecture is not a mystery if you're working in design and technology. So most folks that I run into are not like, whoa, I've never heard of that. They're more like, I think that that's my job, <laughs> which I, my answer is usually like, yes, yes, it is. And if they're doing their job responsibly, uh, whether on the technology side or the design side, they should be having conversations about information architecture. So one thing that I had to kind of get through when I first got to Etsy was the conversation that like, I'm not trying to take over all of information architecture at Etsy. I'm not trying to be the gatekeeper to all IA decisions. Uh, I'm not trying to kind of like own that work as something that a singular person does. So the role that, that I've crafted for myself and that I'm seeing a lot of IAs have success with in other organizations is um, positioning yourself as a person who is an expert in that field, um, but really focusing on democratizing it as a skill set. So making sure that folks that are doing product design, um, folks that are doing marketing and technology design um, and all these other uh, subsets of the business, that they are paying attention to information architecture and that they're having the conversations across those skills with the other people that they're working with about IA decisions. Because as I mentioned before, you can go through your whole career, your whole life, your whole organizational trajectory without ever thinking about information architecture, but that doesn't mean you don't have one. Um, so my role really is to guide people to have those conversations and to look horizontally across an organization that, um, you know, is pretty vertically deep. You know, we have teams that are very, very deep into their specialties of um, search or uh, the user experience of checkout, uh, you know, all these various pieces of the experience on Etsy. But when they come together, they're one experience to the user. And so that's kind of where uh, where I step in is just making sure that those conversations are being had kind of holistically. Mm hmm. Well, and, you know, it, I find it striking that you're talking about how you feel like your role is to democratize information architecture, not so much to own it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, how you got to that or what has led you to feel like that's the best approach as opposed to you owning, you know, let's say all of the information architecture related questions. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I find I find that a lot of people still are in a, in a place where I was a few years ago with it, which is trying to own it. Um, I went through many years banging my head against my desk, 
trying to own the information architecture for the projects and teams that I was assigned to. Um, and what I found was that that was a really, not only was it an uphill battle, um, but it actually created sort of an impossible situation because information architecture is not the product itself. Information architecture is not the totality of the experience that the user is going to have, but it is this backbone that everything is attached to. Um, and if you try to kind of like dictate what that backbone is without the collaboration of all of the other folks that contribute towards that body of work, um, you're going to run into situations where people are trying to change that backbone way too late in the process and creating a lot of a lot of kinks um, for you to work out throughout. So what I've started to really focus on in the last few years of my career is thinking about information architecture as a collaborative function and as something that everyone has to contribute towards and therefore everyone has to understand how to how to interact with and how to have discussions around. Um, and what I found is that that leads to a lot more um, kind of uh, agreement right from the beginning of a project. It also just is a lot less friction as you go through the project. So I would say like for podcast listeners, if you're, if you're out there and you're banging your head against the desk and you're just trying and trying to make changes and changes to get everyone agree with your information architecture, um, you might be not collaborating enough with people. I, I really find that 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 does become kind of like that sticking point. You want to prove value by saying, you know, this is my job, this is what I'm good at. But I think a good information architect understands that without collaboration, you're just architecting a structure that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's only half of the job, really. Yeah, and Abby, you know, you brought up collaboration. What is your approach to collaborating effectively with the others on your team, especially given the fact that there's so many of them and... yeah. So view of you. <laughs> sure. I actually, I, I find that one of the recipes for collaboration to be successful is actually to separate everyone from the herd initially, um, which I know sounds kind of counterintuitive. Like you'd think like collaboration, big meeting, post-it notes, get everyone in a room. Um, <laughs> but what I actually find to be helpful is to not jump to that right away. Um, I like to use myself as sort of the filter and to have everyone's individual opinions go through that filter so that I can figure out what's what, right? Like if I, if I brought everybody into a room, let's say that I've got 25 or 30 stakeholders on a, on a typical project at Etsy, which is about right in terms of number. If I got them all into a room, I would maybe hear from 5% of them. And the 5% that I would hear from would be those with the highest titles or those with kind of the most to show on that expertise, whatever we're talking about, you know, who owns it the most, who knows the most about it, who's the least likely to want it to change. So I might get kind of like that um, opposite ends of the spectrum of opinion in that meeting, if I'm lucky. But if I separate those 20 or 30 people and talk to them each individually, even for 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to walk into that room with a completely different understanding of what we're working with. And I'm going to be able to ask really good questions that are going to drive that conversation towards those points where we disagree and that we can start to build back up to some sort of agreement. Without that experience, I, I'm just kind of left in the dark and I'm one more opinion in the room. Um, and I'm kind of, I have to switch into sort of like dealing with whatever, whatever comes as opposed to kind of being prepared. So I feel like when you're collaborating with folks, um, getting that time aside from, from the group to sort of understand what the individual points of view are, um, to me, that's, that's kind of the key to collaboration. And if you do that right, I find that by the time you get in that room with 20 or 30 people, everybody's kind of nodding and saying like, yep. We all disagree on that. Now they're looking to me for sort of what's the path forward that we're going to get to agreement. Yeah. Well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's something that, you know, I'm always kind of thinking about when it comes to information architecture is 
people organize differently. People think differently. People have different mental models so often, yeah. um, which is, you know, the, the beautiful thing about humanity and humans. But I'm curious, how do, how do you get people to agree? You know, how do you get people yeah. to change the way they are organizing things in their mind? So sometimes it's about getting people to change how they actually organize something in their mind. But more often than not, it's actually getting them to agree that this is the best way for us to move forward for our users. So it's it's more about educating them on the idea that not everybody does have the same mental model, which seems really simplistic. But as somebody who works with mental models all the time, I can say that like sometimes I forget how far off the mark people's mental models can be from one another. And so if I'm sitting in a room, let's simplify the equation way down, right? Instead of those 20, 30 people, let's say that I'm just on a project with a designer, a technology manager, um, and a product manager, right? Those three people have been working on this project for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years together, whatever that, that might be. I still have found that if I go and talk to each of those people, they're going to have very differing, uh, ways of thinking about that same problem. So it's not about convincing one of them, uh, to change their mind and think about it differently. It's about educating them that like, Hey, these two people that you're working really closely with that you might assume you're very much in sync with, they actually have two very different ways of thinking about this problem. So now we've got three ways to think about this problem. Let's evaluate the pros and cons of each. And then if, if need be, let's architect the moment where we take this to the user and we actually have them kind of inform our, our position on these things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that's really the, the conversation It's not like, you know, oh, you're wrong about that. You should change the way you think. It's more like, I can totally see why you think about it that way. But for these people who are in this certain demographic achieving this certain skill within this application, this is how we found that they think about it. And then the designer who's working on it, they've got this third way of thinking about it that they want to have the chance to explain. So I feel like it's respecting the fact that everyone will have a different mental model, but then also highlighting the idea that that mental model needs to be from the user's side more than from the internal side, if that makes sense. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. DScout is a remote research tool that connects you to participants through their smartphones and shows you the moments that matter as they happen. With DScout, you can recruit, design, and run a qualitative study in days, all in one platform. And you'll be hard pressed to find another remote research tool that brings you as far in the field with so little hassle. I've actually used it myself to run a study and I was amazed by how much access I got into my participants' daily lives and how easy DScout made it to learn from them. So give it a shot. Head to dscout.com mm to learn more. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I think probably anyone who's worked within a product team can relate to the idea that your designer and PM don't agree on an approach. Right. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think the thing that I still have a question about is the idea of, you know, what's best for the user, because I imagine that as you're doing research, you know, to inform the information architecture decisions you're making, do you not find that uh, same kind of like disagreement or, um, you know, just difference of opinion in terms of how users are thinking about these things and how they're organizing? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So just like getting three stakeholders into a room and having three different versions of a mental model for how to approach the problem, you could get three users into the room and run into that exact same thing. So one challenge that I find, and specifically when I'm teaching information architecture, I find this to be really important to make a point of. When you're researching information architecture decisions, you can't expect that your users are going to make your information architecture decisions for you. So a really good example would be, um, let's say that we decide to put together a card sort to understand the effectiveness of a navigation taxonomy, right? So we put together this card sort and we put it out to 100 users and it comes back 33% say this, 33% say that, and 33% say this third way, right? Mm-hmm. We really haven't made a decision here, right? We have one third of, of our users thinking something completely different from the other two thirds. And we have three potential options for ways to go. But to me, that's still valuable because it allows me to understand, okay, there are three predominant ways of thinking about this in this, this market. Now we have to evaluate those three ways from a couple of different perspectives from an internal standpoint, right? We have to look at um, which one is the most Etsy, right? Which one is the most in, um, in agreement with the other architectural decisions that we've made? Which one do we think will uh, be the easiest to train our users on that are in that two thirds that don't think like this as kind of their default? So it's, it's using research to inform the decision-making, but not expecting users to make the decision for you. And I think mm-hmm. the same thing is true with stakeholders. You know, I don't go in there and say, okay, there's three opinions. We got to pick one. Sometimes it's actually a mashup of two of those opinions. Sometimes we go in a completely fourth direction and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have been thinking about this completely backwards. We need to think about this, that, and the other. Or sometimes when I take those three opinions internally and marry them with the three predominant structures that we're seeing in research, we get to this whole other place. Um, so <laughs> I feel like it's it's like back to that collaboration point, you have to be ready to kind of iterate and go through that process. Otherwise, you're going to end up with something that is kind of like, you know, the first thing you thought of or the thing that was easiest to agree on. And in my experience, those are not often the most powerful structures that you can create. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, I think it's so interesting to hear how you have all of these different inputs and how you're kind of weighting them and thinking about them and, and, you know, combining them sometimes into something completely new. And one question that it brings up for me is what are the different research methodologies that you find yourself leaning on? You know, you brought up card sorting and obviously you're using stakeholder interviews, um, user interviews, it sounds like, but yeah, I would love to have you speak a little bit about just what are the, you know, the primary methods that you as an information architect really lean on? So it really depends on where in the process um, we are. So I feel like information architecture, because it is so related um, to design and technology, especially in the company that I'm in, um, we tend to use the same research methodologies for for like testing uh, the product itself, including the information architecture. So one thing that's challenging, I think, for folks is that separating out an information architecture to test on its own is very difficult, right? The minute that you take it out of the context of the product itself, it becomes um, a little bit too uh, kind of like back in a person's mind to really get true feedback of how they would actually use it. So card sorts are a really interesting methodology. I do tend to use those a lot when we're creating, um, you know, a, a taxonomy that actually needs to be resilient and function the way people expect it to. But I also find that user interviews um, and user surveying can be really interesting inputs to the process, especially um, towards the beginning of, of when we're thinking about a new structure. So I'll often do something like start with um, a survey, 
survey will give me an understanding of kind of like where there might be um, disagreement amongst the user base around certain topics or features or what to call things. Um, then moving into more of an interview type uh, environment where I can actually put some color onto those those assumptions that I'm pulling out of the research data from a survey perspective, and then uh, ending with something a little bit more structured, whether that be a card sort or um, a full usability cycle where we're actually testing an interface with uh, that information architecture change. So I think it's probably pretty similar to the way that, that you might answer that question from any user experience position. Um, it's just creating that research cycle to focus on the right questions using those, those same research tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am kind of struck by the fact that it is so similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, research is research, you know? I mean, like, when we're researching interfaces, um, it's not all that different from when people are, are researching processes that we take on in real life. And it's not really that different from um, any other type of research that you might apply it to. It's just figuring out what the question is, who you're going to be asking that question of, and then what are the right methods to apply to it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of the tools. Well, yeah. And, you know, Abby, that brings up kind of this question of what does a day in the life of an information architect look like? Because I have a really clear idea, obviously, of what a day in the life of a UX researcher looks like. And I'm curious kind of, you know, what the similarities and differences there are. Yeah. I mean, I I tend to have uh, two types of days in in my world, um, at least right now. And it's pretty similar to when I was independent as well. I would say that I have internal days and external days. (laughs) The internal days are the days where I'm like, you know, in honestly, I'm in my pajamas. I'm probably over caffeinated and I'm very deep into a spreadsheet or a diagram. (laughs) Um, those are some really fun days. I, I really like that. There's usually loud music from my college era, um, involved. And there's, there's just a lot of like inward thinking about everything that I've heard. Um, that could be, you know, printing up a lot of different notes and going at it with a highlighter that can be taking over the whiteboard in my office with, you know, scribbles that no one is ever meant to understand, but me, but this, the days where I'm actually working on a problem actively. Um, and when I'm working on a problem actively, I'm thinking, how am I framing these questions so that the people I'm collaborating with can better inform the solution to these things? Hmm. Um, I try and I'm trying not to come up with solutions in my room by myself. That's something that I I've actively, um, tried to push myself away from and have also started to, to really encourage other people to step away from. Um, to create those those solutions more in the collaborative space. But the framing of the problem, I do find um, it's most effective if I like have the time to really like think about it and, and dwell on it a little bit. Sometimes too much, you know, the analysis paralysis can set into. Um, so that's one type of day, kind of the internal day. And then the external day are, are days where I'm on video chat all day with my coworkers, or maybe I'm in Brooklyn in person, um, just doing back-to-back meetings with coworkers of, of different types on the same problem. Um, I do like to structure my days so that I'm not jumping from problem to problem, but I'm really like focused on one thing. Um, so I do tend to kind of like create blocks of, of weeks where I'm like, okay, for the next three days, I'm having 20 minute conversations every hour with somebody different. And I'm asking the same 10 questions. And that could be two or three days of my life. And that could be like the beginning of a project that then leads to one of those internal days where I'm kind of churning through all of the notes, um, listening back to all those recordings, making some some kind of guardrails about what are the things I want to talk to, to folks about in a group, and then working on whatever that deliverable side of what am I going to have to bring into this room to have the right conversations with the right people? What do I have to send them ahead in terms of you know homework to kind of 
get ready for that moment? And then what am I going to expect from them in the room? And then what am I actually expecting after, um, after that fact? Mm-hmm. So those are, those are kind of the way I look at my days. It's like, is it an internal day or is it an external day? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, and I wonder as an information architect, you know, after you've done all of these informational interviews and user research and so on and so forth, do you then, you know, allow yourself to come up with a solution or do you still, you know, have that solution finding, uh, you know, work done as a group? It depends on um, how much time and agency we've been given as a group to do that. In some cases, I will go with kind of the the straw dog approach, right? I'll come up with several ways to solve this problem. And then we'll, we'll jump straight into the evaluation of like pros, cons. Does anybody have any kind of mashups or differing ways of, of thinking about this? Um, but at that point, some of that ideation has already taken place because of those in, uh, informal interviews up front. So as part of those 10 questions, I might be asking them something like, if you had a magic wand to fix this problem, how would you do it? Hmm. Um, And something like that, when you kind of release people from the expectation that they have to solve it and you put something in its place like magic, all of a sudden they, in, in a lot of cases, they come up with super plausible things that could be done. Um, which I find to be really interesting. Like that's kind of the power of that question is that people think, oh, I can use magic. And then they realize that like the magic was inside them all along. If that makes <laughs> sense. That's kind of like the after school special version of this, but yeah. it, but it really is true. Like, and so what I'll do is I'll, I'll say like, okay, so I talked to 20 people um, of those 20 people, 10 of them were kind of saying like, we need to fix this with better tagging. I'm like, okay. What would it look like if we fix this with better tagging? And I'll just kind of go through that that rabbit hole for a little while enough that I can show this back to those same people I just talked to and say like, you know, some of you suggested that we need to get better at tagging. Here are three ways that we might get better at tagging. Does anybody have any additional ways that we might get better at that? Um, And they can all bring that to the table at that point. So it's kind of like getting the conversation to the point where I think that collaboration can actually tie it up into a bow as opposed to like walking into the room saying, so we disagree on almost everything. Where should we start? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like making that um, that agreement easier to come by. Um, I actually one of one of the tricks that I've used in the past is if there is a lot of a, a disagreement, I will start by saying all the things we agree on. Right. Because if you start by saying all the things that you agree on, you're kind of like, oh, wow, OK, we're more on the same page as we thought. And then when we get to that one or two hard uh, conversations that we have where there's a lot of disagreement, it's a little bit easier to see those folks as collaborative partners is mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, being on the other side of something. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like you're doing active listening on behalf of an entire group. Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's that active listening and then um, kind of the curating of what you heard so that they can consume that back without the bias of knowing who it's coming from mm-hmm. or how they said it. Or, you know, because people say things that are really interesting, but the way they say it can be like super toxic to other people. Mm -hmm. So if I could take that toxic part off and say, you know, I I talked to all 20 of you, you're all sitting in this room right now. I can tell you right now that the majority of you actually agree on this point, but there's some differing opinions. And here's the differing opinions. I'm not calling out who said those things. I'm not, you know, putting them on the spot to defend themselves. It's sort of like I'm taking that multi-perspective angle on everything that's being talked about and allowing myself to be that filter and say, mm-hmm. here are the things we need to consider. This is what's going on. And sometimes that it could be one person that is not in agreement, but you still need to get those 20 people all to agree, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. 
Well, and then, and then what happens in the room, you know, after you've presented, most of you agree on this, there are a few differing opinions. Is there a conversation around the value of the differing opinions or what kind yeah. of happens next? I mean, ideally there is a conversation that naturally starts uh, about that disagreement and that, you know, not everyone is just like staring at their laptop and, and hoping to not be called on. I have been in meetings like that and I'm not afraid to just call on people randomly to ask for their thoughts. Um, and once again, I'll, I'll harken back to the comment I made earlier. I'm much more prepared to do so because I know what everyone already kind of has in terms of their opinion of what's being talked about, right? So I can specifically pick someone to comment on it that I know has really thoughtful response to that thing. Or I could pick somebody who I know is like a real proponent of the opposite way. Um, so you can kind of use the knowledge that you have about how people are feeling about these different things to make those conversations happen in a way that they might not naturally. And I, I really think that, that that's just good facilitation, right? Being able to read the room and, um, you know, stand people up in their their strength. Um, I think that's, that's what a good facilitator does. Mm -hmm. So I ideally in those rooms, we walk out at the end of that meeting feeling more educated about the topic, more um, on the same page with everyone else that we're collaborating with. And we have some really good questions that we have a plan to answer. Mm -hmm. um, I try to be pretty slow about, you know, making it so like, we have to make a decision right now. Um, not many meetings with me end with, we have to make a decision right now. It, it's more like, okay, so what are the things that we need to work on? And what are the steps that we're going to take? And sometimes that might be, you know, these three people need to break off into another group and we need to have a smaller conversation to, to get at this and then come back. Um, that is very, very common. Sometimes it's like, we need to, we need to architect a round of research that's going to answer this question for us from a user perspective so that we can take that into account on our analysis. So I would say that the outcomes are more of like deciding what the actions are towards um, coming to consensus. Hmm. So how do you find that your colleagues understand or value the work that you're doing? And, and I ask this question because, you know, I think this is a wider conversation happening in UX research as a whole, but also I think that what you're doing is somewhat unusual, right? I don't think, you know, most of your colleagues probably aren't used to having, um, you know, going through this type of, of process. So I'm curious, yeah, what the response has been. I mean, the response has been really positive. I would say that the the comments that I get from my coworkers tend to be um, things like, oh, we didn't think that we'd be able to get through that disagreement. Hmm. And by you bringing this process in, we were able to make some sort of progress. Um, that That's probably like the number one. Um, I get a lot of comments about the fact that I'm like an information therapist. So... <laughs> People do, especially those one-on-one -on -one conversations that I have with, with stakeholders, I find that people, when I first started working at Etsy, that was something that I was bringing in from my consulting life. And in my consulting life, I always made people super nervous by asking to do those things, those, those interviews. But by the end of each interview, I very commonly would get responses like, wow, no one's ever asked me this many questions about this before. And I really feel like I understand how I feel about it better now. Hmm. Um, and that, to me, that's really valuable. Like that self-awareness piece is, is super valuable to give to people. I feel like it's, it's a real gift. Um, so when I came to Etsy, I, I sort of had this question of like, am I going to use the same bag of tricks that I used when I was independent? Or am I going to have to completely change the way that I do things? 
And my hypothesis was, no, I shouldn't have to change that much. I mean, I think the dynamics change because now I'm working on the same problems with the same people for longer periods of time. But that stakeholder interviewing one was something that I really kept. And I continue to question whether or not this will change um, because I wonder, like, is being the outsider the thing that makes that really powerful? Hmm. But what I find with my coworkers is that they think about it more like like therapy or like a mentoring kind of moment where they're just like getting out how they feel about something. And I think, and I want to believe that this is true, that there's a lot of trust in me to hold their confidence. Um, that there's going to, I think that they trust that I'm not going to go and be like, well, so-and-so doesn't like the way you think about that. Or, you know, well, I was talking to so-and-so the other day and their mental model of this is way off. You know, that kind of trust, um, I think has actually been something really powerful um, because it creates that environment where you are allowed to have a differing opinion from other people. And I think in a lot of organizations, that's not actually the default that people feel like they can't have a differing opinion because they're not in the right job title or they don't have the right level or the person who has that other opinion has a really strong point of view on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do feel like the reception to my work has kind of been like, oh, you're really asking how we feel and you're taking everyone's opinion into consideration. Um, so I, I, yeah, I want to say that my coworkers feel, feel seen, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's what I ideally would, would want them to feel at least. Yeah. Well, and it almost sounds like you're this great equalizer. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, the sense maker, I mean, that's the sense maker is kind of the, um, if information architect is my job title, um, sense making is more like my calling, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the thing that I, I want to do and it, it goes further than, my job. You know, it's something that I'm applying to my, my life all the time in terms of helping other people to make sense of, of confusing things in their life. Mm-hmm. And what do you think draws you to that so much, Abby? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, now we're turning this into an information yeah. therapy session. <laughs> yeah. Now let me get on the couch and tell yeah. you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's something that I've always wanted to do. And I've always found myself to be pretty good at. My parents thought that I'd be a lawyer when mm. I was a kid, like, cause I'm very good at being able to jump on either side of an argument and put my full force into contributing to that, which actually when I first started, um, information architecture as, as a career, that was really hard for me to kind of retrain myself out of, because I could argue with somebody that my way was the way And I would say like 75% of the time I could win that argument. 25% of the time I'd be told that like, this is above my pay grade and I should back off. But 75% of the time I could strong arm my coworkers into agreeing with my way of doing things. So I feel like that's something from like a personality type that I've actually had to kind of like change about myself um, through this work. And, And really from realizing that like my mental model is no more superior than any other person's mental model in this space. Um, even though I'm, I'm like the, you know, quote unquote expert in this thing, it doesn't make my, my mental model any more correct for, for the user. So I don't know what started it, honestly. It's a, it's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, going through this conversation and, and hearing your thoughts about information architecture, I'm kind of left with this sense that you're an expert on the framework and the process, but not as much. And, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but not as much architecture itself. And, and maybe that, maybe I'm understanding that wrong, but it, it feels like, you know, really kind of the meat of this is 
less taxonomies and indexes and stuff like that and more figuring out how to bring everyone together to come to a consensus to find right. something that makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean I think that if you're if you're doing this kind of work correctly, 20% of it will be the implementation of taxonomies and ontologies. Um, but 80% of it will be dealing with other people to get to the decisions that make creation of those things possible at all. Um, so I would say that my time is allocated similarly, as is my expertise. I spend 80% of my time thinking about how do I collaborate better with people? How do I get people out of their shell? How do I make a comfortable environment for there to be disagreement and still come to some sort of consensus? Mm-hmm. Um, I spend 80% of my, my effort on that and 20% like keeping up with the latest on, you know, how to make an effective taxonomy. I also surround myself with people that are, are good at those particular parts and go deep on them. You know, at Etsy, we have a, a three person, I think soon to be four person uh, team of taxonomists. So, you know, that that is the bulk of their work is doing taxonomy for a very, very large complex system. Um, and while my work in terms of getting people to agreement on structural changes impacts theirs, um, it, it's not completely wrapped up in, in their world of of implementation of those things, if that makes sense. Hmm. So that's an actual separate function. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's very common too. Um, there was a, a really great article. I want to say it was like back in 2002 or three that Lou Rosenfeld wrote on big IA versus little IA. Um, and I've never really liked that, to be honest, which Lou knows. Um, I've never liked the, the idea of big and small. But what I do think is interesting is practical um, application of taxonomies versus strategic consideration of information architecture. And I, I think that that's, that's something that is, um, is real in terms of the way to think about information architecture from an education standpoint, uh, but also it's very, very common in the way that it's broken up as a job. Um, in a lot of cases, folks that are doing little IA um, or the practical application of taxonomies um, in IA, that's part of a job for a product designer or UX designer or visual designer even, or a technologist, you know, those, those functions of implementing a taxonomy can fall to a lot of different roles. Same thing with the strategic considerations. In some cases I've worked with organizations where there's a creative director who's very, very heavily involved with that. In other cases, there's an information architect who is doing all those things as sort of like the single point of control. Um, if you're at Etsy, those conversations are happening in the product organization amongst uh, product managers with designers and design managers, as well as with technologists. So I think that like those two things can be two different jobs. They can be one person's job or they can be, you know, named different things and allocated differently in different organizations. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's something across all of research right now that we're still trying to figure out. Right. And, and maybe we, we just don't is what's kind of the best setup and how do we organize these things to, to get the most effective outcomes. But yeah, I love hearing how, you know, Etsy's kind of experimenting with, you know, big A and little, or sorry, big IA and little IA or however you want to call it, having those be separate functions versus, you know, I'm sure there's tons of organizations where those are the same function. Yeah, and I would almost say, like, in terms of um, the amount of IA, I would almost reverse the big and little. Yeah. <laughs> because to me, like, my colleagues that are spending 40 hours a week pouring on spreadsheets about metadata schemas and doing deep taxonomic research and paying attention to usage statistics for navigation items and, you know, seasonal trends across navigation items, like, 
to me, that's big, right? That's like a big effort to put into information architecture Mm -hmm. uh, versus, you know, somebody like me having high level conversations about information architecture changes that could happen in the future and what that would strategically mean. To me, that's like, you know, that's, that's small potatoes compared to what, what they're doing. So that's, that's part of the reason that I have a problem with that, that particular label. But I do think that like the separation of those as two separate things is an interesting thing to think about Mm -hmm. uh, because some people are really good at, you know, the deep implementation of, of taxonomies, but would not want to get in front of a room and try to collaborate on a big strategic change to that architecture. Mm -hmm. Talking a little bit more about the outcomes themselves. I'm wondering, how do you know, after all of this work that you've put into a project, how do you know when you've kind of arrived at the best solution? (laughs) Well, I would, I would say measurement, but honestly, I I think that Arriving at a solution and it being the best solution is such a momentary thing that mm-hmm. I try not to I try not to go there. Um, just because information architecture is always going to change and it's always going to have to be flexible. So I think the idea of it being done or set is actually a really dangerous uh, proposition, which means that you can't really ever have something that you think is the best. Um, so it's, it's sort of like progress is great, but you don't want to go towards that perfection place. So I would say that measurement insofar as is the thing that we implemented right now doing better than the thing that was there before. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Also, do people feel like the solution that was arrived at is getting to the goals of the organization, right? Like outside of just the measurable goals, is this thing leading us towards being the organization that we want to be? Is it creating a framework that can be attached to later on? You know, in an organization like Etsy, we're, we're often creating things today that are the backbone for things that are going to happen years down the road. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's something really, that's a lot of responsibility. You know, you don't want to be reinventing the wheel every time that you add a new thing to the ecosystem. So you really have to be thinking about, you know, okay, if we do this now, are we painting ourselves into a corner when X happens? Or if, if the team working on Y comes through with the solution, are we going to be able to fit it into the thing that we just created last quarter? Are we going to be starting over? So I think that those are, are really the ways that, that you start to have conversations about whether or not something is is effective. Mm-hmm. It's like how, how flexible and resilient is it over time? Yeah. And, you know, it just makes me think even more about how important the collaborative element is of your work, because yeah. even just to be aware of whether or not, you know, the, the solution you've come up with will work for all of these cases that may or may not take place. You have to be aware of all of those things. Absolutely. And and that's really hard to keep a handle on, even in an organization as small as Etsy. I mean, we're, I think we're a little over a thousand employees and I still feel like there's some projects where, you know, we'll be marching down a path and think like, okay, we've talked to everybody that needs to be talked to. We've done all the things. And then you find out a month after you launch it, that somebody just launched something else that is now in conflict with the thing that you did. Hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a continual process of learning about the organization and how we organize ourselves, And, and Etsy specifically has done a lot in the last year or so to really increase the transparency. Um, but when you're working in a, an organization that is primarily operating agilely, things are moving really quickly and to keep your finger on the pulse of all of those things is, is definitely one of the challenges of my job. Mm-hmm. Well, Abby, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I feel like I've learned so much and, and I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening today. 
If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Abby next week. You can find details on Twitter or in our Slack group. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.